only reason you create a great place to work is so that people can do great work. And so it's like you create that safety so that people trust you, you trust them, but then you don't leave it there. You you stretch people, you give people hard things to do. And, you know, we've all worked for bosses who are all stretch, no safety. That's a miserable experience. Like it's like terrorism all around you. You just mm-hmm. don't know like when, you know, the, the sort of the, sh- um, the shoe will fall. But, but we've also worked for people who are all safety, no stretch. And that's equally miserable. That's like a low grade misery. That's like, <laughs> it's boring. It's like, you never asked to do anything hard. You're never entrusted with a real responsibility. That's like a hovering parent. Mm. Um, but I think that's an idea that I would want people to take from my work is that the best leaders create an environment of safety and then they stretch people and they do that with teams. Those two things have to coexist. And and if there's a message behind Rookie Smarts is that, you know what, sometimes we're at our best when we're inexperienced, when we're stretched, where we're, we can't draw on old knowledge and experience. Um, and maybe the idea that really the critical skill in our current work environment is not what you know it's it's how fast you learn which means a critical leadership skill is not what you know and what you bring to it it's how well you can tap into what other people know like that's that's what we need our leaders to do Right. Well, welcome to another episode of Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi, and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in both business and life. Today's guest is Liz Wiseman, author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, how the best leaders make everyone smarter. The Multiplier Effect tapping into the genius inside our schools, and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts, why learning beats knowing in the game of work. Liz has conducted significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence and writes for the Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and a variety of other business and leadership journals. A former executive at Oracle, over the course of 17 years, Liz was the vice president of Oracle University and the global leader of human resource development. Now, her management research and executive development firm, The Wiseman Group, is focused on developing leaders around the globe who could take on the world's toughest challenges. Her client list includes Apple, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Twitter. As you will see in the show, I met Liz when she came to speak at Tesla, and it resulted in one of the most memorable and emotional professional experiences of my life. On the show, we dive into the concepts of multipliers and rookie smarts, and she tells personal insight stories that have helped to make her the person she is today. She explains the interesting reason why she decided to leave Oracle and how that planted the seed for one of her books. We also discuss her insights as a mother of four and busy professional and how her world changed when she realized the management skills she used at work is the exact same management skill set she used at home. She also shares how and why she created the labels in her books to help provide a framework and language to discuss what she calls the undiscussable. 
A multiplier is a genius maker, and they help to activate everyone around them to be their best by spending their energy on extracting and extending the genius of others. A diminisher does the exact opposite by restricting others and holding them back from what she calls tapping into their native genius. We will discuss all this in detail, including giving examples of the accidental diminisher, someone who has positive intentions, but inadvertently diminishes those around them. She also gives sage wisdom and advice for parents looking to find more balance between their business life and family life. I'm beyond thrilled to release today's episode and can't thank Liz enough for being on the show. Please enjoy this episode of Inside Out. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, best-selling author, CEO of the Wiseman Group, executive advisor, top 10 leadership thinker in the world, TED Talk speaker. These describe my guest today, Liz Wiseman. But the description that I like the most is the description that she gave herself. And that description is she's a learner of leadership. And when I think about that description, it really drives home who Liz is as a person and how she thinks about the research that she does and the impact that she's making to rid the world of horrible or bad bosses. I had the opportunity to meet Liz when I worked at Tesla because we have a mutual friend in common in Ben Putterman. Ben Putterman, we both adore him and we could have a competition over who adores him more. I reported to him, he reported to her. And so I feel like almost by default, I've gleaned many of the lessons and insights and knowledge through Liz, through Ben. And I am so honored and excited to have Liz on the show today to share so many nuggets and so many insights that she has taken from her own life and her own research. And so with that, I just want to start by saying, Liz Wiseman, welcome to Inside Out. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to be here, Billy. And I love something getting started and something fresh. So I'm thrilled to see the growth of your podcast. And we could spend the whole time talking about Ben Putterman, couldn't we? We really could. Your books, obviously, both of them talk about Ben. You mentioned him in, in other instances, and he has had such an impact on my life and in my career. And it's so refreshing to learn some of the things that I honestly, I, you know, I gave Ben all credit and now I have to give you mutual credit because there are themes that we're going to talk about on today's show, things like learning agility, things like assume positive intent, things that I never really thought about. But when I worked for Ben, they were so omnipresent. Speaking of omnipresent, when I got started at Tesla, multipliers was probably the buzzword I heard the most. Everyone was talking about multipliers, multipliers, multipliers. And your book, which you originally wrote in, in, in 2010, and you've since updated and, and brought so many new elements to it. We're going to talk about that. But one of the things I want to get started with is rookie smarts, because that is something that really resonated with me. You and I have something in common, which we were both given the reins to lead a training organization, probably before we really should have been. And in that, we're able to tap into something and harness something that a lot of people probably don't think about, which is how do we 
leverage our ability to not have so much knowledge that it actually stunts our ability to perform. And so why don't we start with your first role, the promotion that you got at Oracle, which you were tapped on the shoulder to lead and create Oracle University. I'm curious, did you know at the time that you'd be harnessing your rookie smarts? Was it something you realized or was that something you really learned as you reflected later on? Oh, I had no clue that being a rookie would be an advantage. Yeah, no, I wasn't like working my rookie smarts. I was just surviving. And all I knew, but but it was the environment I was in. I was in an environment where the company was growing rapidly and it was a successful company growing rapidly. And so lots of people were being thrown into jobs that felt too big you know, mine probably was two sizes too big, but we were all being thrown into big jobs and the company was being successful. So I just thought, well, why not? Why not? And, you know, it wasn't until years later that, and it was actually this moment where I was about to be fired from this job because, you know, I'm doing, so I get asked to lead the, you know, you know, lead the training group, start the university. I do that. I'm in, I don't know, a year or so into that job. And my boss comes to me and says, you know, the company's growing really fast. This is now a very large operation. We need someone experienced to run this. And we're going to hire from the outside and bring in, you know, vice president or something for Oracle University. And that was, that was tough enough news. But then he said, we've got a candidate coming in to interview for the job tomorrow. You know, so they already had a search out for this person and it was just devastating. And so essentially I was like, wow, I'm getting fired from this job, you know, or demoted from this job. And they brought the person in to, to interview. And it turned out that it prompted a bit of a revolt around the executive team. And, you know, as like lots of searches, um, they have him interview with the executive committee of the company. They also have an interview with me. And the next day, my boss comes again to visit me. And I think he's going to tell me that, you know, they've decided to select the candidate or not. And he said, well, that didn't like really go as I was expecting. He said, because when I went to, and he was so honest and I so admire his, his vulnerability and his honesty in this moment. He said, when I went to go and talk to each one of the executive committee members to get their feedback on this candidate. And the candidate, of course, was this kind of person you would expect, a mature executive. He had probably run training operations or you know, corporate universities. He said, they were mad at me. And they're like, why are you bringing someone in from the outside? Like, Liz is doing a great job. Like, we love Liz. Like, <laughs> it turned out that it was like, boo-hoo on you for considering another candidate because Liz is doing a fantastic job. And, but you know, I'm doing a scrappy job. Like nobody, right? Nobody from the outside would have hired me to go lead a big corporate university, but I was doing the job that needed to be done. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I totally understood why he was getting someone from the outside. I probably would have gone and hired someone who knew what they were doing. But it was what I heard from the executives of like, no, like she understands us. She knows what's important 
don't bring some Yahoo from the outside <laughs> who's going to come in with his own agenda and going to come in and try to make us look like, oh, what was the big Arthur Anderson, I think, had that big corporate university at the time. We don't want someone to impose their agenda on us. We want someone who understands the business and understands our agenda and is doing what we in the business need now. And that was really a rookie advantage because I didn't have experience to draw on. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't come in with a bag of tricks and tools and my own team and a candidate, which is what external people often bring. I had to listen and I had to pay attention and I had to follow their lead. And it kept me extremely aligned. Like I always think it's funny when people who are in HR and learning and development roles talk about how they can like get closer to their stakeholders and their business heads and better like understand them. I'm like, oh, how could you not? Like, because that's that's right. the only thing I had going for me is I stayed close to the needs because I didn't know what they were myself. I did not see this as an advantage. I saw it as a, as a disadvantage, but I think that's how we a lot of this. And, you know, one of the things I found in doing this research for the, the book, Rookie Smarts, is when we look at people's satisfaction level, uh, it's very, it's highly, if not like a, a 1.0 kind of correlation, it's highly correlated with challenge level, meaning that when people are in jobs that are really challenging, a little in over their head, you know, above their pay grade, as we sometimes say, it actually is deeply satisfying for us. But it's not that it's satisfying when we're in sort of the nadir of the challenge. It's right. satisfying when we've climbed out of the hole. <laughs> like that's the part that's totally. very, very few of us like that pain and the anguish of not knowing what we're doing. But boy, does it feel good when we've mastered it. That's so It's true. the mastery rather than the challenge that feels good. Yeah. When, when you're in the fire, it doesn't feel good. But once you've escaped the fire and you're looking back at what you've accomplished, what you've done and how you've done it, and you can reflect and you have a little bit of space and distance between that, you start to realize, wow, I was really, that was amazing. That was an incredible experience. And you're a better person as a result. Well, and you you talk about you know insight, and and that's that's kind of your focus. Is I really do think our best insight comes in hindsight, you know. And sometimes we kind of mock the the sort of oh yeah, you know everything's twenty twenty in hindsight. But really, capturing hindsight based insight, I think, is critical in our careers, and it means we have to we have to pause. Mm. What did I just go through? What did I just do? What what just happened? So true. Our mind is, I think, quieter when we are not in the midst of doing something or being someone or having something in the middle of our life. But when we have that time to quiet our mind, you know, our prefrontal cortex, the critical part of our brain can actually start to think. It's why we have insights in the shower or when we're working out or when we're not thinking about everything else we're doing. Since we're talking about insights, jokingly, as we were getting started, I said, you're an insight machine, which you found amusing. Some of the insights you've had, they came through research, but there's certainly insights that you've had that have come through life. I wonder if there's any insights. And, and when I say insight, I don't mean, you know, you just had a small realization. I mean, a deep 
realization, a life-changing breakthrough moment type of insight. Curious if you could think back, what would be something of that magnitude in your life that stood out? I'll give you a few. One, probably the insight that led to this book, Rookie Smarts, was when I left Oracle. And people often ask me, well, why did you leave Oracle? Uh, The simple answer is I left Oracle because Ben left Oracle. He and I both left within a week of each other. We're like, okay, let's just both jump. But I left Oracle because my job became easy. Like my job got bigger and bigger and bigger, but it became known and knowable and doable. And it really felt terrible. And, you know, I had been for 17 years, I had been in jobs that I wasn't really qualified for. I wasn't prepared for it. And then I got to a point where I was what um, I have a friend who said, man, like you're legit. And, And I was legit. Like I actually knew what I was doing and it was this awful feeling. And like, I like the illegitimate feeling of really reaching and striving to figure something out. And and so I left in search of something new. And and it was this observation or this insight that I had as I was doing that, leaving um, a company I had worked at for 17 years, a job I had been doing in one form or another for a dozen years. I mean, it was always a different job, but you know, it was kind of like the same fundamental challenge. And as I left, I thought, gee, I wonder how what I know is going to get in the way of what I don't know and need mm. to learn. Like, wow, I wonder if all this experience that seems impressive to other people is actually a great big millstone about my neck. Like, how is this going to blind me to things? Where am I going to think I know what I'm doing but I really don't know what I'm doing. And that was the insight that it actually went from that insight to later a rant with my publisher. I went to meet with my publisher at HarperCollins to uh, kind of pitch them on an idea for a new book. And it just started with that rant. And she said, because I'm like, you know, really, I feel like we're at our best when we don't know what we're doing. And yeah, da, 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 and rant, rant, rant. And she's like, Liz, I think you need to go dig into that. Like, that's your next book. So that to me was a bit of a, a breakthrough moment where I began to see how experience can actually be a huge liability and inexperience can be a huge advantage. That's one, you know, another probably big, a big moment. I want to, maybe I'll go back to like the very beginning of my career. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is uh, I joined Oracle. I went to work as a program manager in their consulting division, looking after education for their consulting division. And I was doing it for about a year and we reorganized, my job went away. And so I was interviewing for another job inside of Oracle. I had had a year under my belt and had done some good things, probably was seen as someone who did a good job. And I went to interview for the job to work in the training department, like the corporate training department, which was this nascent group. We mostly did a boot camp, which was a three-week initial training for all of our new college recruits. And I'm interviewing for this job, and I'm telling a man named Bob Shaver, who's the vice president of administration, I'm telling him kind of what I could bring to this job and what I could do for this training group. And it was all about the lack of management training in the company. And a lot of people being thrown into management jobs. And this was something I wanted to do is I wanted to like build a management 
curriculum for Oracle. And he listened and he said, Liz, we think you're great. Like, we are so excited to have you join this team. Like, you're a superstar. And he said, but what you're describing is not our problem. You know, actually, right now, we've got, we're hiring thousands of college grads each year, all technologists out of the top technical programs. So these are the top graduates out of the top programs at, you know, MIT and Caltech. And he goes, actually, the problem that your boss has right now is how to get all those technologists up to speed on Oracle technology. It's a technology training problem we have, not a management training problem. And he said, what would be great is if you could help her solve that problem. And it was so clear to me what he was saying. He was saying, you know what, we we care about you, but we don't really care about what you care about. Mm. And, and what he was saying is, why don't you try instead of coming to us with your passion, and these are my words that I'm like implying in hindsight, is it's like, why don't you make yourself passionate about what we need? Like, why don't you, Liz, make yourself useful? And it just hit me. And it really was this defining insight for my whole career has been, you know what, make yourself useful. I have to say, I have a fairly low tolerance who, for people who come into situations oblivious to what needs to happen and saying like, here's what I want to do. Right. And I just prize working with people who come in with their eyes open, look around. It's like when someone comes to your house and you're hosting a party and you're just a little behind schedule and getting it done and your best friend arrives five or 10 minutes early and he looks around and says, oh, you need those chairs set up, don't you? Let me go set up chairs. I love that. Rather, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love this? It's the best when somebody sees this need and they go in rather than, well, you know, I've got a real like creative, I'd love to like arrange the centerpieces. Like centerpieces don't need to be arranged. Chairs need to be set up. Right, and, right. <laughs> and, and so this really was a big insight and a breakthrough moment for me where I like, oh, you know what? I'm going to make myself useful. And I think going back to this this time where I almost got fired from heading up the university where they were going to bring in someone experienced. I think the reason why the executive team revolted on this potential hire is they're like, no, this person understands what we need. She gets it. And I think it's something I've tried to do through my career is just, okay, put aside yourself, put aside your ego and just figure out what needs to be done. That was a big moment. And it's defined some of what I'm working on and researching today. Oh, I'll tell you another big moment came when I was a busy working mom and I had four children. I have, I still have four children. I didn't get rid of any of them. Um, I have four children and I had a huge job at Oracle and you know, I'm sort of trying to manage both and balance both and you know, it wasn't like an insight that came in a eureka moment, but it was this realization that actually these were not two separate worlds. They were one world. And it wasn't like, I want to talk about work at home or talk about home at work. It was what I'm doing at work, this management skill set, this leadership skill set that I'm developing 
and exercising, it's not something I leave in my desk drawer Mm. and then I go home and become a mom. It's the exact same skill set of helping people see what needs to be done, helping people take ownership for things, helping people make good decisions, helping people work together, helping people stretch into new challenge. Like, I'm like, wow, it's not a little bit alike. <laughs> it's, it's the exact same right. skill set. Like it's a Venn diagram that, that it's like, like, right. <laughs> right on it's top a of full other. moon Venn diagram, meaning that there's little slivers on the side that are different, you know, and this realization that good leadership looks a lot like good parenting and, and bad leadership looks a lot like bad parenting. And I mean, certainly you don't want to bring your worst parenting skills to work and vice versa. That to me was liberating because instead of trying to juggle two worlds or have to like wear a certain kind of cloak at work and then a certain kind of like have a mommy style versus a manager style, like I just could show up in both places as the exact same person. And realize that investments I was making in being a good mom benefited my work and vice versa. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. It's so true. And that's some of the stories that you share in your books, especially those about you being a mother and you talk about being a soccer, being a soccer game, right? And with multipliers, you don't see a coach running out into the field and score a goal. That just doesn't happen, right? But you, you apply things from your life into your research, into your books, and, and vice versa. And I love the talk, the, the, the first insight that you shared about the feeling that you, you weren't being stretched is what I took from that, right? At your role and why you decided to leave and why you ultimately did make the journey into what you're doing now and, and away from being an Oracle is you were legit. You weren't necessarily being stretched in the same way you were being stretched when you started. And then your second insight, I think, is so valuable as well, which we see all too often, whether people start a company or work for a company, if you start a business and the business is not fulfilling a need, if the, if the market doesn't bear your existence, you might be passionate about it, but the passion is meaningless if there's not another person on the other end of that passion that wants to take part in whatever it is that you're doing. I'm curious. I see themes between rookie smarts and multipliers. One big theme I see is the importance of asking questions. It it is something that I see throughout everything that you have both personally observed and, and researched and then ultimately what you've written about. I'm curious, is that something that you're naturally, are you naturally an inquisitive person yourself or is it something you have to work at? And why do you feel and, and granted, there's so many valuable things shared in the books, but why do you feel being highly inquisitive, having an, an insatiable curiosity is so important for a leader? Wow. You know, I do think I am naturally inquisitive. I'm naturally observant. So it does. So I'm constantly wondering why and asking questions. I'm also naturally irreverent. So I'm, you know, I have this like itchy allergy to authority and, you know, and, and sometimes it activates a little too quickly. So I am naturally curious. However, I'm also 
naturally talkative and cursed slash blessed with the gift of gab. Me, So my mind is naturally curious, but sometimes my mouth moves faster than my mind. And, and I have to learn how do I quiet my mouth and activate my mind? So like I'm constantly asking questions in my mind, but conversationally, I have to learn how do you stop and ask other people questions and activate their minds? You know, you asked, like, what's the role of intellectual curiosity in, in leadership? Like an intellectually curious person, someone who's naturally intellectually curious can be a great innovator, you know, a rule breaker, an Elon Musk type, you know, from, from Tesla. But to be a great leader, you also not only have to activate your own curiosity, you have to do that across an entire organization, which means your value comes not from the own ideas that come out of curiosity, like, well, hey, why not this? Well, hey, I wonder why our experience can be a disadvantage. Like, that's a way of me asking a question that activates me. But how do you ask the questions that activate everyone else's minds? I mean, the, the premise behind the book, Multipliers, is really that the primary job of a leader is not to, to do the thinking. The primary job of a leader is to activate thinking and intelligence in others. And it's purely a numbers game. Like if you've got 10 people on a team, one boss and nine contributors, like what's more valuable? 10% more thinking and capability from the boss or getting 10% more from everyone on the team. Like this is no brainer math. And I think one of the reasons why I've been useful to people around their own leadership is that I've had to learn how to do this myself. I've had to learn how to turn my own ideas and my own thinking and my own curiosity. Like, how do I bring that, but temper it? Like, how do I temper my own strengths to create room for other people's strengths? I was just going to say, sometimes your own strengths, and this is one of the, the, the biggest takeaways I gleaned from multipliers is sometimes what you may perceive as your strength is actually has a diminishing impact on those around you. You may think that you have all the ideas in the world. You may think that you are the pace setter. You may think that you're doing things to elevate your team. You know, you're responding quickly to emails, things of that nature. But in reality, those are all habits that could have a diminishing impact on those around you. And I think specifically the accidental diminisher and, and coming up with nomenclature that really brings to life the concepts that you share is so, so valuable. You're, people never want to be biased, but an unconscious bias, they're, more, they're going to accept it. It's the same thing with being a diminisher, right? Nobody wants to be a diminisher, but if you're an accidental diminisher, you might be at least somewhat open to understanding how you may be accidentally diminishing those around you. One of the things I know you think a lot about are names and specifically how you brand the concepts, in which I just alluded to a few of them, specifically the accidental diminishers. I wonder, because you highlighted what Multiplier does, which is they're, they're genius makers, and that's a really simple way of saying it, but what they do is they elevate people. They, they help people not only identify their native genius, but flourish within their native genius and make it something that they are constantly performing and doing. And a diminisher does almost the opposite. They're know-it-alls or they, in some way, shape or form, they hold people back from 
flourishing and from thriving and from using their native genius. And so what I'd love to talk about for a moment is the accidental diminisher, how some that may think they might have multiplier tendencies may also have diminisher tendencies. And I wonder if you could talk about the names of maybe some of the top accidental diminishers that you've come up with. You know, you're right. I do put a lot of thought into naming. Um, I don't know if branding is the way that I would think about it, but I do think about the labels that we put on behaviors and like, how do you name something in a way that it is accurate, but also it's a way that we can talk about it. You know, culture for, for a group to share a set of values, it has to share a set of language. That language is the great carrier of culture. And I think when I look at the great authors in the corporate world, you know, management and leadership authors, like what they really are is their linguists that help us put a name on something that we all see. Mm but we don't have a way of talking about it. And I think that's what the book Multipliers does for people is there's, there's sort of two reactions to this. One is people say, wow, you put a name on a dynamic that we've all experienced. We all get it, but we haven't been able to talk about it. Like, thank you. This is an incredible gift because we can now discuss the undiscussable. That's one reaction every now and then. I don't know, maybe I don't know how often it comes up, but I look at the book reviews on Amazon and I don't know, every now and again, there'll be one that they hate these names, multiplier, diminisher, accidental diminisher. And they'll put reviews like, oh, this book was horrid because like these overworked cutesy names, like for some people, they don't appreciate this. But I do think a lot of people have appreciated this because it allows us to talk about what is undiscussable. I found that the organizations that have made the most progress building a multiplier culture, meaning a high contribution culture, a culture where people come to work and and bring all of their intelligence and all of their intelligence gets seen and used. That's really a multiplier culture where you know, the leader's job is to see and use the intelligence of people around them. The, the companies that do this aren't the ones that just train everyone in how to be a, a multiplier. They're not just singing multiplier hymns. What they do is they, they found a way to talk about the undiscussable, to discuss mm. the undiscussable. They have found a way to talk about people's diminishing behavior in a way that isn't harmful or threatening. And, you know, we, we can discuss the undiscussable. We find that most of the diminishing that's happening is done with the best of intentions. See, when I started this work, I was misguided in that I thought that the diminishing that was happening in the workplace was coming from the big diminishers, the capital D, the um, diminishers, the all caps diminishers, the, the tyrants, erratic, the tyrants, the know-it-alls, the bullies. And, and those people exist. They're very real. If you work for one, I am sorry. Like I really, really, I like, I hurt for you. If you work for one of these people, they are really not the grand perpetuators of diminishing. Most of it's done from People like me who are really well-intended, who like being managers, who value their people, who care about their people, who want to do a good job, but 
whose best intentions can end up causing a diminishing impact, like the high energy person who's always on, they bring so much energy that nobody else has to. Like they're, they kind of expand like a gas and fill up all the space in a room and they take over and people just back away. They're not like jerks. They're blessed with the gift of gab. They're people whose ideas come so freely. They become the fountain of ideas, the idea guy. Of course, I am one of these people. And, you know, they're pace setters who are achievement oriented, who, who think, okay, I'll get out ahead of the team and I'll set the pace and other people will, will follow. And we actually find that when you lead by setting the pace, you're more likely to create spectators than followers. People are watching you do their thing. They're rescuers that really want people to be successful. They, so they step in and they, they help. They're perfectionists. They're rapid responders. And these are all little names that I've given to describe this really well-intended behavior that unfortunately is actually as diminishing as tyrannical know-it-all bully kind of behavior. In some ways, it's more diminishing because we don't see it. Like the victim, the diminished doesn't always see it. They're like, oh, I have such a great boss. Like she always helps me when I'm struggling. (laughs) Then they can't figure out why they're never getting promoted. Right. And they don't realize that's because your boss is doing all the hard work and getting all the kudos while you languish. You know, and those who are diminishing don't see it because they all they see are their best of intentions. Like I love this because what was fascinating to me is the importance of restraint. I found is something that I connected with because I guess I would call it an eager leader. Uh, I I want to do so much. I I want to be the servant leader. I want to help. I want to be there for my team. It's counterintuitive by me being there. If I'm over quote unquote being there, I'm preventing them from doing what they're capable of doing on their own. And and one of the things you shared was it's better to be 90% to perfect or to complete and have and, and give someone full ownership. Then I tend to be a perfectionist and to try and get it to be perfect, right? Because what you're ultimately doing is you're Preventing other people, and granted, you you said you know one person versus ten. You're preventing ten people from flourishing and from performing at a level that they're capable of because you. And when I say you, as a leader of this kind, which I identify with, I'm spending too much time trying to make it so perfect and being so involved, being hyper involved that in it, the result is I am preventing them from doing their own best. Like a common mistake I see so many managers make is they're simply working too hard. They're over contributing and they're trying to model the way, but they're, they're optimizing it for one. So they're trying to model passion and energy and their passion and energy, but no one on their team is. They're trying to bring ideas. They're in full creative and innovative mode, but their team isn't. And really what we want is we want all of those behaviors but we want them. So optimism, like I'm a massive optimist. It's hugely diminishing optimistic leaders. We, we don't want pessimistic organizations. We want positive can-do organizations, but in some ways for a team to be optimistic, the manager has to be a little less optimistic. Like maybe the manager plays a role of 
of seeing downside and letting the team focus on the upside. But it's a numbers game. It's like, how do we get these virtues on the team and in the culture rather than in the manager? And I, you know, you asked about like what were some of the breakthrough moments that helped me develop insight? I'll give you another one from my personal life. And this is back to being a mom of, of four kids. Now, my kids have a father as well, have a husband. So it's not like I'm the only one at home trying to do all this. But there was this moment I had just had my fourth child. Again, big job at work, big job, get home. And I find myself constantly saying to my kids, like, hey, kids, kids, remember, there's four of you and one of me. Like, because I'm in timesharing mode. I'm like, okay, let me help you with this. Now let me help you. Okay, you need help with your shoes. You need help with this. And I'm running around helping everyone. And I'm saying it constantly, multiple times a day. Okay, remember, there's four of you, one of me. Like, there's not enough of me to go around, is my message trying to educate my children on this. Like, be patient. Okay, there's four of you, one of me, four of you, one of me. And like, it hit me in a flash. I'm like, wait a minute, four of you. And one of me, wow, what if instead of seeing this as like, I don't have four dependents, I have four staff members. (laughs) See, I had been splitting myself trying to help them. And I'm like, no, I'm going to get you to help me. And like, my job was not to be busy myself running around trying to help four kids. How do I get four kids busy? So let's say we have to leave for an airport. And for those of you listening who are like, oh, I don't have four little kids. Like this is a metaphor really for the workplace is if we had to leave for the airport and I've got to get four kids ready, instead I'm thinking, okay, Megan, will you go through the house and make sure all the windows are shut? Christian, can you carry the suitcases out to the car? You know, Amanda, will you make sure the cats have water in their bowl? So I'm putting more and more responsibility on them. And they're little kids at this time. But I think, you know, I guess the part of the world I live in having four kids is a lot of kids. Now I know in some parts of the world are like, eh, you're just getting started at four. But (laughs) for my little world here on the peninsula in in Northern California, it's, it's a big family. It has forced me to think about how do I, instead of being super heroic, and trying to pull super heroics. How do I help everyone around me be fully utilized? How do I help them take ownership, take responsibility? And for me, it's that large, the rule of large numbers that has, it like just forced me into doing this. And I think it's the same with a lot of managers. You know, if you're managing a team of three people, your default is, man, I can do a lot of the work myself. I can suffocate them Mm -hmm. and we can still get things done. They can be barely with a pulse. (laughs) I can still pull heroics and make it happen. And sometimes it's when you get a large team, you're like, oh yeah, no, I actually need other people to be at their best, not just me at my best. Yeah, it's the 2 a.m. leader, right? It's the person that works to the bone that doesn't involve their team to the point where they are working way harder than they need to be because they have people that are more than willing to step up and help in any number of ways that the leader thinks that they need the control or they need to be working on it all themselves. And here's another example of how you've applied what works in business into your own life, as well as you know, extreme question asking, right? Like asking questions, going into a mode where you're asking more questions than making more statements. 
which it sounds like you asked a lot of questions of your family, of your children, which helped them understand maybe how they could be adding value and contributing and, and helping in whatever it is that you're doing if you're going to get ready. I want to talk about a, a couple more things before we get into our lightning round. One is 51% vote, 100% accountability. You heard that from someone, I believe, I believe. Can you share with the audience what that means and why it's so valuable? Hmm. Well, this is something I heard from a man named Doug Allred, and he um, he had actually had run customer support at Oracle, and he was being hired by John Chambers, who was the fairly new CEO at Cisco. So this is back when Cisco, the technology company, the networking router company, they're just growing, you know, into a large company. John Chambers is the new CEO. He's hiring his first executive. So this is his first vice president that Chambers is hiring, and he hires Doug into this role. And Doug's going to be heading up customer support at Cisco. And what Chambers says to him is, Doug, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote. And I thought that was so fascinating. I'm like, 51% of the vote, that's brilliant. That is the most amazing shorthand for your in charge. You know, people talk about empowerment and giving other people ownership. Like a mistake people make is they they talk about empowerment like it's sprinkling lavender fairy dust. Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, you're empowered. Oh, just you're empowered. But like, what does that mean? Right. It's too vague. But it, it's so vague. If you tell me I get 51% of the vote, I know exactly what that means. It means, you know what? I'm in charge. If there's an impasse, I'm going to make the final vote. Like if we disagree or if I can't, you know, I'm not getting response back from my boss. Like if I have 51% vote, I own it. I was super excited about this. And then Doug told me, he's like, now, but he said more. He's like, you get 51% of the vote and 100% of the accountability. Like, wow, that's even more interesting. And I love that Chambers gave him 51% of the vote, not like, hey, you you get 100% of the vote. Because 100% of the vote says, oh, go work in a silo, do your thing, do your own thing. 51 says, in the end, you're in charge, but consult with me. You know, bosses like to be consulted. And bosses like to have ideas of their own. Like, hey, I want to offer you insights. Listen to me. Consider my point of view. Keep me informed. But in the end, you're in charge. And I'm going to hold you accountable for that authority. I think it's a brilliant way to lead. Yeah, I do too. It was a huge unlock when I heard that. When you came and spoke to the group, and I don't know if you recall or not, I did mention this in my LinkedIn note to you. I was so emotionally touched by something you shared specifically about watching our children grow up and and being a bit vulnerable. I did something I don't normally do. In fact, I've never done, which is after you gave the talk, you were generous enough to stay and meet everybody and talk. And you and I connected and we talked for a brief moment and I I just started crying. Mm. And and, and it was almost uncontrollable. I, I know where it came from, but I was surprised that it came out. And the reason it came out is we only have so much time to watch our children grow up and eventually they do go out and become their own individual people. And I wanted to first say thank you for that reminder of just how important it is for our, our children and, and to be a part of their life growing up and to recognize that when we focus 
ourselves as drivers that we all are on being the best that we can, often we forget about the things that are most important. And so I first want to say thank you for, for giving me that, that moment that I will never forget. That was a moment really, it's a, it was a life-changing moment for me. Not that I didn't give my son the attention because I did and I still do to this day, but it, I think it gave me a greater appreciation of just knowing that those days that we have, he's seven now and he's, he's going to be eight soon. And we did try to have some more children. And fortunately, my wife got pregnant six times and uh, we, we didn't actually have a second child. And you know, I say that only to share that I feel so blessed and, and lucky to have the one child that, that I do have. And I think we talk about balance and some people talk about harmony and all these different things. I'm curious what advice you have for the leader that cares about their kids, which hopefully they all do, but also they care about their, their career and they care about thriving. We hear these buzzwords, balance or life harmony or all these different things, mm. but how, how do we do it? I mean, how do you do it or how should we do it? What, what tips or advice or guidance do you have in that realm? Well, I, th- I think you have to know who wins the battle. Uh, for me, so I, when I had, um, and you know, and Billy, I, I loved it when you shared that story with me. Um, it is one of the great joys of my work is the collateral benefit people get at home. You know, I'm, I'm not a parenting expert, and you know, you could ask my kids that; they would tell you. <laughs> and when we take these ideas and we apply it at home, I think people become better parents. And, um, and I love that you shared that. Um, you know, when I had my first child, I was concerned about going back to work. I was concerned about having a big job. And I, I went, I said something to my boss and I guess today it would be called like expressing vulnerability or like emotional courage. I don't know. To me, it was just pure desperation is Mm -hmm. I went back to work and I said to my boss, I'm like, Phil, and I had this amazing boss, Phil Wilson at Oracle. I'm like, Phil, you know what? Up to this point, I've solved all my problems by just working harder, but I can't do that anymore because I now have a child. And I said, I want you to know that if my work ever comes into conflict with my family. I'm going to choose my family. Now, most people wouldn't say that to their boss. Like most people would probably feel like they're supposed to like say, oh no, I'm really committed. But I'm like, no, I'm very committed to being a good mother. And, you know, I actually named my first daughter, Megan McKay Wiseman. She's named after David McKay, who said no success compensate for failure in the home. Mm. And I've thought a lot about that. And it doesn't mean you can't have success outside your home, but lots of people have successes outside their home, but they fail in their home. And I'm like, you know what? That's not a place I want to fail. Um, I want to get that right. And so I, I, I told them, I'm like, hey, if these ever come into conflict, I'm going to choose my family. Like I decided who wins. And strangely, I shared that with my boss. And it was like he became, he understood. And, and he became like an um, ambassador, like a peacekeeper, because he knew that if these kids, and I didn't mean like, gee, if I ever have to do a work dinner, 
I'm going to say no because I'm going to go home and read a story to my kids. No, I did lots of work dinners and traveled, but I'm like, if they ever feel like, if I feel torn, if I feel like these are in conflict and I have to choose one, I am choosing my family. I'm choosing home. No brainer decision. And so he became an ally in keeping these out of conflict. He was like, he became this peacekeeper. I never asked him to do it. He just would say, you know, Liz, that meeting that's happening in France, it's not that important. You know what? You can send someone else. I'd be like, cool. I'm going to opt out. And he just made it like he was a watchdog Mm. for me because not because he wanted me to be a good mother. He wanted me to work because he knew he knew what would lose. And I think making a fundamental choice about what's most important in your life gives you a peace and it helps you keep peace between the two. Yeah, I've made lots of choices. I've sub-optimized my work career, my success at work. I've made all sorts of choices to say, nope, nope, not going to do that. Like for me, I've kind of made a choice to not go big in the social media world, to not be tied to social media because I feel like it would cause me to not be as present at home. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I'm like, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Well, life is about choices and choices that are a direct relation to where our priorities lie is an important thing to remember as we go through life and we have always a choice. We could do this or we could do that, right? And you say yes to one thing, you're by default saying no to something else. And if if that no to something else is no to perhaps being the parent that you want to be, and, and that will end up, I would say, eroding your ability to do what you, what's most meaningful in life. And everyone's different. I, I know for me personally, I, don't, I take no responsibility greater than, than being a parent. So... Yeah. And I think it's one of, you know, it's one of the beautiful things I've seen happen in my life. Like I'm now old enough that I've seen some like meta changes. And one of the beautiful things that has happened because more women have gone into the workforce and had professional careers is I have seen how men have been incredibly blessed by this because it's opened up this, uh, as women have struggled with this balance it's allowed men to come out of the closet on this and say, you know what? I actually want to be a good dad too. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to just work and leave the family to home. I want to be present for my children. I want to be an active father. And I have seen so many men like yourself who, who, who want to do this. And I think families are blessed because of it. And I think one of the things striving, aspiring fathers Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting also, as I go on this, this new journey of being an entrepreneur and it's, as you know, who, who did very similar, you figured out, Hey, I'm going to do my own thing. That doesn't mean that, that you uh, all of a sudden have all the time in the world to just be a parent. In fact, quite the opposite in, in what I found. And I think one of the things I have to recognize is when to turn it off. Because even though I may be present in, in terms of proximity, I'm not present in terms of connection and being there. You know, if I'm on my computer, if I'm on my phone and you talked about social media, boy, I can tell you that you're spot on. It, it does take a tremendous amount of time. And I guess the point that I'm making here is being close to someone doesn't mean you're near them. Being close to them means you're with them and connected to them. And I think that's an important distinction. 
Yeah, it's, you know, about like doing things a little bit more singularly and being doing them intensely. And I, I, for me, it has been very helpful, as we talked about earlier, knowing that skills I was developing at work, I got to bring home. But yeah, no, it's like learning to be whole people will really help people manage that to balance these worlds and to bring them together. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I do have a question about challenge because that is something that I think ultimately we all face and some can go and say, we've had these failures, we've had these road bumps, we've had these significant challenges. I'm curious, as you reflect and look back at your own life, what challenges have been most significant and how did they ultimately change you as a person? In some ways, I don't feel like I've had any challenges in life. Like I've had a constant stream of new things to deal with, hard things at work, but I've I really haven't faced tremendous adversity mm-hmm. personally. The closest thing, probably the thing that was hardest for me was a fractured professional relationship. You know, having to um, sever a professional relationship that really was hard on me. And I mean, it took me years to really grapple with that and to deal with it. And it's still something that hurts because it, I didn't think it should have been fractured. I think I am a much better colleague and manager and leader because of it. I think it's really sensitized me to a lot of things. And but yeah, that was hard. That was that was hard. But you know, I feel like in some ways, my life has been really, really easy. I love that you said that because so many times, let's be honest about it, we do talk about quote unquote challenges, but if you share that with somebody that has had legitimate, real life adversity, it's like, really? That's your challenge? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't have any. I, don't, I really don't have those big challenges. In some ways, my challenges have been learning how to temper things, learning how to stay centered. Um, but you know, I think for those of us who haven't had big life challenges, big medical challenges, mm-hmm. you know, I've always looked at that and said, well, then there's an obligation that comes with that. Like if you aren't dealing with one of those kind of challenges, then your job is to find a way to be a blessing to someone who is dealing with it. Mm, I love that. Um, yeah, I think it, it comes with an obligation. And you, you talked about centering yourself. You talked about finding that balance. And you also mentioned your irreverence. You said that that's sort of a tendency, which I found that really fascinating because one of the, the things that I really appreciate about multipliers, and you highlight this, it's not about being soft. It's not about being the feel-good manager that is just easy. And I think you say uh, cupcakes and kisses or something like that. It's not that. In fact, it's the opposite. It's somebody that's not afraid to challenge. It's somebody that's not afraid to push somebody and to help them be their best person. And, and I wanted to highlight that because I, I really appreciate the conversation that we've had today and especially the fact that you're, you're unwilling to compromise who you are as a person and also recognizing that when you put out work, like the, truly work that is game-changing level work. It really is. And and I don't say that, you know, half-heartedly. I truly mean that. I mean that when I read your books, it was explosion. 
because it wasn't telling me the niceties. It wasn't telling me just the feel good parts. It was telling me that I have to work on myself and, and not only work on myself, but work on myself to understand and be almost have a, a critical awareness of myself and be courageous enough to ask other people where I could improve. And I think that unlock is tremendously valuable. And so I'm curious, when you think about how people embrace your work, whether it be rookie smarts or multipliers or in the academia world, the multiplier effect, I'm curious, what's most important for you that they realize? One thing I'll just share is your mom said that the number one takeaway from multipliers is the one word that would describe it is trust. And I'm curious if you were to kind of come up with either not necessarily a word, but you could share in any way possible, what would be most important for you in terms of what people take from the work that you're putting out into the universe? Well, I don't know that I'm as smart as my mom. I can't really boil it down to one word, but I thought she nailed it pretty well. Mm -hmm. When she said, yeah, you know, I think multipliers is fundamentally about trust. And I think there are a few ideas that people want to do hard things, that we actually enjoy challenge. And when I say I haven't had significant challenge in my life, I don't mean I've had a life absence of small and medium size and even a few large size challenges. I've had bad bosses. I've had tough situations. Like I've had a bunch of that. I haven't had XLL kind of challenges. And sure. I know lots of people who have. Um, but those small and medium and even large nice challenges is we want them, we grow from them, and we need them. And like leaders need to let people dwell in that space. They need to give people those challenges. They need to let them suffer through those challenges a little bit, not rescue them and help them. That that's where we find our greatest joy. And it's where we find our greatest satisfaction is in the mastering of that challenge. But people will resist if they don't feel safe. Mm. I, you know, Amy Edmondson's work at the Harvard Business School is phenomenal. I just came back from the Thinkers 50 event and the Breakthrough Idea Award went to Amy Edmondson on her work on psychological safety. And interestingly, the leadership award went to me on for, for multipliers. And I think these two ideas really come together is that people can do amazing things, but they need to know that they're trusted. They need to trust their leaders. They need to feel that trust. You know, my mom beat me in that she could she boiled multipliers down to one word trust. I can boil that book down. It's taken me years since I wrote it to be able to do this, but I can boil it down to two and a half words. That's the best I can do. And it's the, it's safety and stretch. Mm -hmm. And is the half word. I couldn't quite give it its own word. <laughs> yeah, right. But like what great leaders do is they create a safe environment and not just where people feel emotional safety, but where people feel intellectual safety, where they're safe to take risks and disagree and think differently where and be a little bit irreverent without looking irreverent, you know, um, that they've got to create this safe environment, but they don't stop there. Like a lot of managers stop there. They want to be these kind of like huggy kind of leaders. Let me right. create a great place to work. We all love each other. We've got free massage services and food in the cafeteria. And it's going to be just like great environment. But the only reason you create a great place to work is so that people can do great work. 
And so it's like you create that safety so that people trust you, you trust them, but then you don't leave it there. You you stretch people, you give people hard things to do. And you know, we've all worked for bosses who are all stretch, no safety. That's a miserable experience. Like it's like terrorism all around you. You just mm-hmm. don't know like when, you know, the the sort of the sh- um, the shoe will fall. But but we've also worked for people who are all safety, no stretch. And that's equally miserable. That's like a low grade misery. That's like, <laughs> it's boring. It's like, you never asked to do anything hard. You're never entrusted with a real responsibility. That's like a hovering parent. Mm. Um, but I think that's an idea that I would want people to take from my work is that the best leaders create an environment of safety and then they stretch people. And they do that with teams. Those two things have to coexist. And, and if there's a message behind Rookie Smarts is that, you know what, sometimes we're at our best when we're inexperienced, when we're stretched, where we're, we can't draw on old knowledge and experience. Um, and maybe the idea that really the critical skill in our current work environment is not what you know. It's, it's how fast you learn which means a critical leadership skill is not what you know and what you bring to it. It's how well you can tap into what other people know. Like that's, that's what we need our leaders to do. Man. So powerful. I, and I love it because I, you can't have one without the other, right? You can't be the feel good touchy feely manager that maybe makes the safe environment, but you're not stretching you're not allowing your people to stretch and you can't be the tyrant, the tyrant that is forcing your people to stretch or, or maybe pushing your people away from stretching altogether. You got to have both. And I think really, it's really important for leaders to know where do you default? Are you by default an overstretcher or an understretcher of people? Mm-hmm. Like I am for certain an overstretcher of people. Like if you ask Ben Putterman, Ben Putterman say, uh, yeah, wherever Liz, like you, it might be a near death experience. She might just kill you. She will not micromanage you, but she might give you something that just is so big. So I know that about myself. People have told me, people have thrown those bricks at me. And so I have to spend my energy thinking about, okay, just because I would want to be given that challenge, maybe someone else wouldn't. How do I assess yeah. and dial it back? If you're an understretcher, it's probably because you love people and care about people. And so, okay, you're protecting them. Yeah. Maybe what I need to do out of real true compassion for them is to give them something harder and bigger. Like, and so you just have to know which way to push yourself. I can't be out on the field of a soccer game as a coach trying to score the goals. You have to let the team play and you have to help them be the best that they can be. So with that, I want to get into the lightning round. And the lightning round is a series of just quick questions. It's an emotional state where you just give me your gut reaction. So we will start with what excites you? Uh, going to new places, new countries. Oh, love wow. We can talk about that for ages because I, like you, have been to uh, over 40 countries and I just, I love travel. So we could, we could have many conversations about that. Yeah. Anything new, new questions, new research projects, new books, new, like that all excites me. Mm. Yep. It's me too. All right. What scares you? 
uh, new books and new research questions scare me (laughs) 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 because, you know, you're out there in the space of unknown. So it's exciting and it's scary. I'll tell you the other thing that scares me. Well, I have an irrational fear of crossing railroad tracks, like having my car get stuck on a railroad. My kids think I am nuts because I'm constantly like, kids, okay, this is what you do if you ever get stopped on a railroad track. So like, mom, it's never going to happen. I'm like, it could happen. (laughs) Um, That scares me. And you know, honestly, having my children grow up and leave scares me. Mm. Like it scares me not for them. It scares me for me. Like, sure. Like, how sad will I be? Like, and can I survive that sadness of not having little people or my people in my home? That scares me. Yeah, I think we, uh, we can definitely agree on that one. Mm. What surprises you? I am constantly surprised by uh, what young people can do. My first podcast, I interviewed Toby Corey, and one of the big takeaways I got is just how much, it, one, we have writing on of future generations, but also how much we have to be grateful for. Because as much as social media can be a, a negative channel for a lot of reasons, our access to information is unparalleled. And my hope is that the younger generations will use knowledge to do good in the world and to do amazing things. So yeah. So if, if you feel comfortable sharing, when was the last time you cried and why? You know, I cried just a couple of weeks ago in front of like 400 of my peers. And it was at the Thinkers 50 Gala event. And I was receiving this leadership award and I wasn't crying because I received the leadership award. I cried kind of like a baby talking about a very dear mentor of mine, CK Prahalad. And I was describing him and the impact he had on me and that got me teary. And then I just started crying and just said, you know, I, I, I really miss him. Mm. I miss this great man. And I'm crying now thinking about him and how he... Um, believed in me and invested in me and trusted me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of like, kind of like, yeah. In front of a whole bunch of like, you know, business school professors. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm sure that they appreciated what you said and can relate to missing somebody, especially somebody that had trust in you, which has been a theme in your life and a theme in your work. Trust is so, so valuable. Questions, trust, and stretch. Those are the words that, that bubble in my mind as I, as I think about you. What book have you recommended more than any other book and why? I lately have been crazy about the book Range Okay, by David Epstein. It's a brilliant book. It's brilliantly written. It's, um, it's all about the advantage of breadth of knowledge and not, now not falling victim to deep specialization in a world that's changing fast. I just think it's a brilliant mm, book. Polymath. And I listened, yeah, it's really the, the polymath, the celebration of the generalist and the polymath. And I listened to it on audio and the person, I'm forgetting his name, who reads it, that the voice narrator who reads it does such a brilliant job. I had to like go on to his, I had to figure out who it was, go <laughs> onto his website and send him fan mail to just say like, <laughs> half of the reason why this book is so brilliant is the way you read that book. Mm. It's such a good book. Okay. I have not read it, but absolutely will. And I appreciate the way in which you described it and, and being more of a generalist and understanding a wide variety of things as opposed to going deep in one area, which often we, we've thought that's the way to go. But I think evidence is now maybe proving otherwise. Who's been the most inspirational person in your life and why? 
you know, my mom has probably been the most influential person in my life. We have a very close relationship. I've learned so much from her. Uh, the person who inspires my mom inspires me for a whole set of reasons, but like my mom is the kind of person who breaks while driving uphill. Like she's very cautious and conservative. The person who really inspires me is my son, Christian. And some people know him. There's stories about him in some of the books. He He's 21 now, and he inspires me because he's such a seeker. You know, he's a, everyone knows him as a thrill seeker. Uh, you know, like near-death experiences don't really deter him. He's a thrill seeker, but he's also an, a knowledge seeker and a truth seeker. He's in his second year of junior college right now in the community college. And he's a, an incredible student, and he comes home just not only having gleaned something from physics and astronomy or philosophy or his world religion class, but his ability to integrate them and put them together and extend that. Like he is a true, true student, Mm. you know, and he's someone who took a gap year and then opted Mm. for community college before transferring to a four-year college. And so it doesn't seem like the path of a traditional great student, but man, this kid is a learner. And I just admire this about him. He is learning for the sake of learning. He's getting great grades too, but he's like learning for the fun of it. I love that. Well, I'll tell you what, you know what you said though, it's a shame that it's not more common to take a gap year. I think it should be almost required. And especially if you could have the good fortune to explore another country, because that one year difference I think makes a huge, huge difference in your appreciation of learning and your appreciation of being in college. Because when you go straight from high school, it's like you've been in school for 13 years and now you're going into college. You don't have that same zest for learning in, in most, yeah, in context of life, right? I'm a big proponent of that. I think it's so, so I, valuable. I am as well. And really, not only should everyone take a gap year, everyone should take a gap year like my son's gap year. It was epic. He, what did he do? Well, he um, he trekked about a little over 2,000 miles on foot up mountains, and he climbed you know a couple 20k peaks, and like he solo trekked the John Muir Trail. He solo trekked the South Island of New Zealand. Oh, love that. <laughs> You know, he solo trekked through the three passes of Nepal, climbed huge mountains, spent 45 days above the snow line, you know, in India, snow trekking and mountaineering. Yeah, just a lot of it solo and high altitude. Wow. Well, I'll tell you. A lot of it very dangerous, too. (laughs) That must have been a bit unnerving and a bit scary as his mother, but... It does sound truly epic having not a lot of those places. I've, I've been to the South Island of New Zealand and that in itself is amazing, but I love that he did it on his own. I think I've traveled on my own as well. And there's no substitute for having the freedom to be a solo traveler. I mean, you could do whatever you want, whenever you want. And it may sound lonely, but it's not because you, A, you meet people if you want to meet people, but you also have the solitude that will allow you to reflect and think about life. That's amazing. And then on your mother. I know that she was your proofreader. I know that she early on was looking, <laughs> looking at your manuscripts and you delivered a manuscript that was so surprising to your publisher because it had so few errors, your mother being a principal and clearly understanding the English language such that she 
helped you craft your manuscript in a way and make it so presentable that you surprise the publisher. Perhaps that's a profession that if she has, isn't doing, she should, she should look at. I love that you know that about my mom. (laughs) Well, I I was fascinated by some of the things that were most fascinating to me were the stories about you and your family. And so very cool, very cool to hear that you have that. And I I work with my mom on, on the podcast a bit and she does, she does my notes for the podcast and helps in other ways, but I think that's such a valuable thing. Um, Liz, let me ask you, if you could spend one hour with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, it'd be my father. My father, for sure. He passed when he was 68. And uh, so much of who I am is, you know, function my dad. My dad was kind of a hard person, a gruff person. You know, I'm the product of a diminisher dad and a multiplier mom. Mm. and um, but wow, man, so much of what I've learned to do was things I've learned um, in just being with my father and I miss him. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how we're, I think we're all, you know, obviously we're a product of our experiences, but we're clearly a product of our parents. And I also think that we're all multipliers and we're all diminishers. It's just a matter of what diminishing qualities we have most and what multiplier qualities we have most and understanding those. So that's not only understanding through self-awareness, which we all know is important. It's, under, it's having the courage to embrace the feedback and having the people in your life that aren't afraid and who are willing to give you the honest feedback. Liz, if you had a chance to tell your 20-year-old self something, what would it be? You know, I wouldn't really give any advice to my 20-year-old self. I just like leave my 20-year-old self alone. Like, you know, I had it all figured out at 20. Like, just don't worry about things. Um, I'm not a worrier. I don't overthink things. I just say, keep going. You know, really, honestly, my 55-year-old self needs reminders from my 20-year-old self. All I, love, like, I love that. <laughs> I mean, well, seriously. What would your 20-year-old self tell your 55-year-old self then? Don't overthink it. Just do it. And, you know, if I, if I learned some, like, I feel like I really only have one skill in life. And it's a meta skill and it is, I call it the naive yes, that I'm really quick to say yes to hard things before my brain kicks in and figures out they're hard and I should say no. So I'm, I do this all the time. Like people ask me, you know, like give me these ridiculous invitations. I'm like, I have no, or jobs. I'm like, I don't know how to do that, but sure, why not? And this was like my very much my 20 year old self. Like, sure, I'll do that. Why not? Like, you don't overthink things. And um, like, if we can maintain this, I think some really great things happen. Just so yeah, I know all the advice would be going to my younger self (laughs) to my older self. That's the first time I've had that. That's a great response. Who are your greatest mentors or who is your greatest mentor? Clearly your parents were mentors and you could say them, but who, who else would stand out as your greatest mentors? I know you were a mentor to Ben and then you've been a mentor to me, not even knowing you're a mentor to me. Well, you know, Ben has had a lot of influence over me. You know, Ben and I worked together at Oracle for 10 years and that mentoring relationship went both ways. You know, one of the great joys of my professional life has been my relationship with Ben Putterman, um, who has so much integrity and so much intelligence, you know, and really I learned loyalty from Ben, who's this incredibly loyal person. Uh, Another great mentor of mine was Dr. C.K. Prahalad from the University of Michigan. Um, he's the person who made me cry. And he, you know, C.K. taught me 
the importance of assumptions. Uh, he was this brilliant strategist. And what he did better than anything else that he did was he could look at any course of action, a business decision, a market strategy, and he could understand what are the underlying assumptions behind that. Like mm. watching him pull assumptions out of an argument was like, you know, like if you're fishing in a village and you watch like a fisherman fillet a fish, like, you know, the rest of us do it and they ha- we hack it up. Like that fisherman will like, and the fish is filleted. Like that's how CK's mind work. He could like look at something and go, oh, well, clearly. Like when, when I shared with him multipliers, he's like, listen to my research and the conclusions. And he said, oh, clearly these are managers that assume that everyone has intelligence and that intelligence can grow. And with the right kind of leadership, it can be extracted and grown. And that creates a competitive advantage. I'm like, how did you do that in 20 <laughs> seconds? It took me like two years. Um, I love it. He really taught me how to see assumptions that sit underneath um, our actions and how if changing our assumptions changes um, the resulting actions. He also taught me to stay unencumbered, that the best thinking emerges when we're not tied to the trappings of the business world. And he really taught me the importance of staying intellectually unencumbered and staying financially unencumbered and um, just not burdened by trying to run a big shop. Mm. I could see why you were so touched when you reminisced about him on stage. Mm. And wow, special person. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I love him. I I just, I love, yeah, I love how um, how did you, how did you, how did you first meet him? Well, I hired him. So I hired him at Oracle. Oracle, we were uh, really in the ditch on, we needed someone to teach our executive strategic thinking. And so I went on a talent search mm-hmm. around the world, literally looked at every one of the top business schools, looking for who is the best strategic thinker and teacher of strategic thinking. And um, so I hired him to come in and work with us for a couple of years. And we just became fast friends. And later, and he just, I became his student. And he just taught me, certainly not everything he knows, but everything I know, I feel like I learned from, from CK. And I always wondered why he chose like me to invest so much in and to mentor the way he did. And I'll tell you one of the things that did it is um, he said, you know, I get hired by a lot of companies and they want me to come in and teach and present. He said, and then they proceed to like review my slides and scrutinize everything that I'm going to do. He said, Liz, you never have done that to me. When you brought me in, you put me in front of the executives and you told me what needed to happen and you trusted me. Mm. And like somehow that like endeared me to him. And and um, yeah, and so he just continued to, uh, he became like my, my research advisor and opened some doors for me. And it was actually a, a conversation I had with his wife that really led me to this um, idea about leaders multiplier. Wow, pretty impactful. And and clearly, you you had multiplying effect on him and brought out his genius. In turn, you learned from him as a result, which is super cool. Can you share? Is it too early to share what's going on with your your next work? Is it something that you could give us a little bit of a, a flavor of what you're working on? Yeah, it's still pretty. Um, raw at the moment, but I'm the, the question that I've been asking is why are some people in organizations so disproportionately valuable? And and it's not a function of their job. It's really 
why are some people so valuable and what is it that they do that makes them so valuable? And um, what, what, what if those things are replicatable and learnable? And so I'm really looking at the practices of, you know, the most valuable players inside of organizations. So in essence, I'm looking at the contributor side of the high contribution equation. I know there's things that leaders do that cause people to contribute at their highest, but I want to know what, what are the practices of the contributors? Love it. Well, I can't wait to, to see that come out. And I know that you're in the midst of it now, so I'll, I'll be patient. But when it does come out, I hope to have you back on the show to, to share with the audience some of the key findings and takeaways. I, I just got to say from the bottom of my heart, I feel so humbled and truly it's been an absolute pleasure to have this very real and free conversation to talk about the work that you've done, the person that you are, and your generosity to give so much of yourself and so much of your time to share your insights. I've had so much fun talking with you and learning from you. And I'm so grateful that you have been a guest on Inside Out. So Liz Wiseman, thank you for being on the show. Billy, it was a pleasure. It's really because I'm fascinated with the way you think about things. And um, thank you for caring about the work I've done. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.